And hello there, Wednesday. This is Peter Mansbridge. You are just moments away from the Wednesday edition of The Bridge, the only one that exists during this hiatus period of the summer. The Wednesday edition, Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth, with Bruce Anderson. A can of pet food, where every ingredient matters. Some companies like to brag about their first ingredient, but the Acana Pet Food team is proud of their entire bag. That's because every recipe has been thoughtfully sourced and carefully crafted with the highest quality ingredients, starting with quality animal ingredients, balanced with whole fruits and vegetables. Acana Pet Foods are rich in the protein and nutrients your dog or cat needs to feel and look their best. Available in grain-free, healthy grains and singles for sensitive dogs. Acana, go beyond the first ingredient. Yes, sirree. Peter Mansbridge here. Bruce Anderson is in Ottawa. I'm in Toronto today. It's hiatus time on the bridge, but not on Wednesdays. We're there for you. We're there with the latest smoke, mirrors, and the truth. So let's start off with the truth on the radishes, because it has been a hot one this week, and not just in BC, where it's been unbelievably hot, but it's been quite warm here in central Canada as well. Thunderstorms quite often in the evening. How are those little radishes making out in this kind of weather? I'm about 30 kilometers from those radishes and those other vegetables right now, Peter. And I can feel them saying, thank God, this has been a great week. This has been our best week. This this week started with um, Bruce and Molly going up and planting some other vegetables around us. And so the whole area is really crowded now with different crops. And it was hot, but we poured water on it from the creek legally with the pump and it worked like a charm. And then we had sun and heat and rain and more rain. I think it's going pretty well. I can feel it doing really well. And I can't wait to get up there later today and see how things are. So the, the all this heat isn't drying out the creek because of the evening rain showers. There's a bit of risk of that. The water level is pretty low, but the rain has been coming. It, you know, it hasn't been torrential, and I wouldn't mind seeing a little bit of torrential rain. Uh, it's pretty dry here this year, but um, it's, it's been a better week. That's what I can say. And we planted some new stuff, so we're going to have more to report and, and maybe even some pictures uh, next week wow. when we get together. That'll work really well on this radio broadcast. I know, but, you know, here's the thing, Peter. I don't know if you know about this. I remember... <laughs> You did a story, I think it was like 70 years ago, where you said there's this thing called the internet, (laughs) and here's how it works. And I don't know if you stayed in touch with the internet, but uh, we can share the pictures on the internet. That's good. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing it. And I'm, you know, I'm particular, you know, on this irrigation plan, does it like, do you have irrigation ditches or do you just leave the thing? spraying out water all day no i got one of these funky sprinklers that kind of like sprays the water around and it you know it it kind of feels like a miniature version of a real farm and that's pretty exciting to me does the sprinkler move up and down the uh the 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 no it kind of goes in a big circle but it has that kind of pulsing effect that you like that sense of uh well somebody's really thought this through even though it's pretty much made up as we go but it's a great proving ground for next year and and i'm glad that everything's planted peter because, and, and, you know, now the sun and the water are going to do their work because I've been, uh, you know, I've been just dying for a few moments to kind of research what's the next book I should read. 
what book <laughs> do I need to read? Have I got read a book urgently? for you? <laughs> well, I heard that there's a new Peter Mansbridge book coming, and I was disappointed that it's not going to be available until October. Is that right? But boy, I know that people are going to want to know about that. Well, there is, a thing, about that. there is a thing in the book cycling business, right? That's either spring or fall are kind of the main times. And so this book was picked for the fall, partly because it wouldn't have been ready for the spring. Um, I started writing this actually last summer. Um, and this is more in the, uh, as opposed to last year's book that I wrote with Mark Bulgich uh, about extraordinary Canadians, about, you know, real real people who have done amazing things in their lives. Uh, this one's actually about me. And uh, I wrote it, uh, you know, this one is uh, all me. Um, it, it was announced on Monday. I didn't want to clutter up the, the special program I did on Monday, obviously, about the residential schools question, which, by the way, has been extremely well received out there. Uh, and uh, it's been listened to both as a podcast and on Sirius XM, uh, Channel 167, which is they're running it every day this week. Uh, that's their commitment on, uh, on, on this issue. It features two people, Mark Miller, the Indigenous Services Minister, and Murray Sinclair, who was, of course, the chair of the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Anyway, it's a very good broadcast. If you have not heard it yet, um, please download it off the podcaster. If you're a SiriusXM subscriber, look for the time that it's running on. Uh, each yeah, I'm really happy that they did it and that you did it and good for you to kind of spend the time and good for them to have the kind of the long form conversation. I think one of the great things about podcasting is, is you can have those longer conversations and, and people can really get a chance to hear these issues talked about in a, in a more in-depth way. Uh, let me very briefly say the the book will be out October fifth. It's called Off the Record, and it's a collection of uh, of stories from my career over the last fifty years. The kind of stories you know how when you go out for dinner with friends or you're having dinner with family and you end up telling stories about your work that you didn't really tell at work or uh, on the air. In my case, as a broadcaster, but they were in many ways the kind of stories that you remember those moments most for. So that's what this book is full of. And it's full of all kinds of stories from different parts of, as I said, my career over 50 years, but in different parts of the world, different parts of the country. Um, and, you know, I, I hope uh, people enjoy it. I had a lot of fun. It's going to be, it's it. going to be big. And, and you know what? Uh, people can't see us as you pointed out, but I can see you. And I know there's a copy of this book because you're holding it up. And uh, that's so the there one is at copy least I one have. copy of this book. Yeah. And it, here's the thing I want to know, Peter, is I, I know a lot of the <laughs> stories that you have to tell, and you have some of the best stories. And so I know this is going to be an entertaining book, an enlightening book. It's, it's probably going to make you look good. I, I don't think there's going to be a lot. <laughs> yeah, in it. You'll be surprised. You'll be surprised. But here's the I'm thing. I'm pretty so honest I think in this that, book. When I hear you talk about your life story, usually like 25% of it is about that one two iron that you hit on the 14th <laughs> hole at Cruden Bay. And all of your friends are like, will this be a whole chapter in the book? Or or will he even mention the book? Because he's, you know, he doesn't want to draw attention to all of the other golf shots. Like, is the golf in the book? Actually, it was... 
the 13th hole according to me. <laughs> the 13th hole. <laughs> it was the par five. It was a two iron to the pin and, uh, you know, about an 18-foot putt uh, for birdie. Now, I don't remember it that well other than it was <laughs> one hell of a two iron. It you was, talk about it a lot. Though. Yeah, Jesus. it really, it, it really was good. Um, All right. Anyway, on to the on to business. Let me let me just <laughs> leave this on the book. Uh, this the copy I have that I'm holding up that you can see on our little internal feed um, is the one copy I have. It's what's called a reader's copy. It went out to certain reviewers and people who, you know, who will offer if they're so inclined to what we call a blurb for the back of the book. Um, I think I earned that book today, by the, the way. But yeah, <laughs> but the actual hardcover edition of the book uh, doesn't come out until October 5th. But you can pre-order right now at indigo.ca. And this week and this week only, there's a special on uh, in terms of pre-orders. So um, that's all I'm going to say. It's also wow. on, on my website at thepetermansbridge.com, thepetermansbridge.com. You can see something on it there. Off the record is the book called. All right. Time for actual <laughs> smoke mirrors, smoke in, the mirrors truth. in the truth. Of course, that was all the truth, just right. like the book. Yeah. Everything in this book is true, according to me. Now, um, I want to talk about borders and where we are, because um, I'm confused. I think I'm like a lot of Canadians. I can't quite figure out what's going on. We're doing extremely well on the vaccine front. Um, You know, an increasing number every day, it goes up by one or two percentage points. The number of those who are totally vaccinated, we're around you know, around 80% in the 12 and over category for one vaccination, and we're over 30% in the um, fully vaccinated area. So the, these are good numbers. They're marching towards, a, uh, you know, even better numbers. But can we go anywhere, like even internally in the country? But more importantly, mm-hmm. for a lot of Canadians, can we go to the States? Can the Americans come here? Uh, can we go to Europe? All these things can happen, but there's so much protocol and regulations attached to it. Is there any sense that any of that's changing? I, I think that the, I think there is a sense that things are changing, Peter. My, my feeling is, and the conversations that I've had tend to confirm this, that, that officials on both sides of the Canada-U.S. border and our, uh, our kind of friends and allied countries that we do a lot of travel back and forth with are also working diligently on what does this need to look like? And I think that, you know, the instinct that a lot of people have, myself included, is a kind of an impatience. Now that we've, you know, we seem to have kind of hit a level of vaccination and a reduction in the number of cases that we should be able to kind of get back to whatever normal is as quickly as possible. And so impatience is part of this. But I think that, um, we need to reflect on the fact that complexity is also going to be part of it. And how do we deal with certain things? So thing one is it let's imagine that at some point in the not too distant future, we all can put an app on our phone that shows that we've had um, two doses that we're fully vaccinated. Um, And America says, okay, you can come, but, but at the border is the American infrastructure in place for everybody to check and verify uh, those apps. I don't know that it is. And I think that's a very complicated thing, especially when, you know, we've seen over the years that the United States has really built up its kind of homeland security apparatus 
And sometimes, I, I don't know about you, but as a traveler, I can go into the United States through the border and feel like they've got an awful lot of protocols and measures and security that didn't used to exist and probably make life pretty complicated and add cost and time and that sort of thing. On our side of the border, I think obviously what we need to be aware of is the fact that um, the vaccination rate in the United States has slowed a lot. And uh, people coming from some states, in Alabama, for example, very low vaccination rate. So to protect ourselves, our own society, we're going to need to check on the vaccination status. At least this is my understanding of what we're, you know, what we're going to be obliged to do when we open up that border fully. That's going to take time. How do you do that without creating these huge lineups, which cause people to then you know, pull their hair out and say, why weren't we prepared for this? Why does this kind of seem like it's not working that well? And I think where I'm at is that this is going to take a little bit more time to sort out, but we are going to start to see some movement in terms of opening up these borders. And we're probably going to experience that sense of both frustration and maybe a little bit of understanding that we're trying to do something that we've never done before. And that's just with the United States. And there'll be other complexities. You, you and I have been talking about going to Scotland. And even as a month ago, we might have been able to look at August and said, well, you know, maybe that's going to work out okay, August in Scotland. And now we're seeing cases climb there uh, and protocols are tight there. And will that change, you know, in the next four weeks? We can all want these things to change more quickly. Uh but it, we may end up regretting if uh, if our decision makers ended up moving too quickly on some of these things. Um, you talked about the app. Uh, I, uh, the app that they seem to be talking about is this Arrive Can. Arrive app. Can, yeah. Arrive Canada, but Arrive Can is what the app's called. So I went on it uh, last week, I guess one of many people who went on it, and I signed up for it. But right now it's basically... Uh, you know, it's basically a blank slate. It, uh, it, it's not delivering anything yet. There's no point to enter your vaccination history or any of that stuff. Uh, but is it's probably wise to at least get that app on your phone because when yes. it happens, it's going to happen all of a sudden. And you don't want to be starting at stage one, which is getting the app itself. The system will probably crash when everybody tries to get it, uh, but then filling it out. But that is the one, right? That's what I understand. And I understand that it was the second most downloaded app in Canada last week or something like that. So I think that the, that, that word is starting to spread. And, um, y- you know, I do think that people who travel will quickly figure out that they need it and they'll get it. And I think that the knitting is going on on the Canadian side of the border between the federal government and the provinces. The provinces obviously have the data about who's been vaccinated. So they have to agree on how they're going to share that data um, in what format and with what kind of privacy protocols so that there can be a national uh, system uh, that allows people in Germany, for example, who might not care whether you live in Nova Scotia or Manitoba. They only want, really want to know if you're coming from Canada, do you have a uh, proof of, uh, of immunity? So. I think that work is going on on the Canadian side of the border among the governments that need to agree to it. I think work is obviously in place on the Arrive Can app. And I think that there's also work going on with other countries to establish protocols that uh, that are in line with um, 
uh, with theirs and with our understanding of the science and how to be sure that what we're taking is a safe step because I, you know, as much as, as we all want to get on with it, whatever it is for us personally, we also don't want to fall back. Um, and I think that's key in the minds of a lot of the political decision makers right now is that what would the, what would it feel like if we took one step too quickly and found ourselves back um, in some sort of horrible situation uh, going into the fall? So uh, better safe than sorry, I guess, is the ethic. You know, when we talked to Anita Anon, the Minister of Procurement and uh, and part of that, you know, Central Cabinet Committee on, on the whole uh, COVID story, uh, she talked about how they were in Cabinet dealing with this issue around, I mean, some call them vaccine passports, others vaccine certificates, or some form of proof that you've had two vaccines. And as you mentioned a moment ago, part of the debate around that is is the debate over privacy. And some people feel very strongly about uh, the, the position of, of not um, enforcing people to have these uh, vaccine passports. Uh, but do you know where, where that is? I mean, some you call it whatever you want to call it, but there, uh, one assumes that at some point you're going to have to have something other than, I mean, I, I plasticized my two uh, vaccine things and have them available, although nobody has ever asked for them anywhere yet. Like, you know, travel on the, you know, the airplanes. <laughs> I love week, that you plasticized though. I did. But because that'll make them you. work wherever. You just go, look, it's in plastic. So you have to accept it. <laughs> yeah. But it's it's an eight by ten. I couldn't get them to, you know, like condense. It's not like you can put it in your pocket or anything. Um, yeah. I, I, th- I think that is coming along, Peter. In fact, someone told me uh, just yesterday that there is a place in Ontario, like a, a, a website for Ontario, where you can I go in and access that. Now, I don't know if it's fully loaded and ready to go yet, but I think those those are being developed. I think there's no question that governments know that they're going to need to have this, that people are going to want it, and that it needs to be digital. And, um, and, and, and then people like you and me probably will still carry the plasticized version. I'm going to get mine plasticized uh, today. <laughs> I thought that was very like appropriate of me that I was like doing a good thing and was going to be able to, you know, when the somebody at the, the gate at Air Canada or whatever said, have you been yeah. vaccinated twice? Here, I was saying, yes, look, look at this. Proof. And I would haul this out of my briefcase <laughs> and that they would be very impressed. But nobody's asked for it yet it's very og as the kids would say (laughs) okay i don't know that one what's og we'll come back to it (laughs) is og something i don't want to learn what the letter is old school it basically means old school og is old school (laughs) never mind let's carry on (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh boy now uh, you know you're really making me feel old it's my birthday next week too um uh, just on the, uh, the last point on these um do you, you seem to be saying likely the american situation cleared up first then moving on to europe or the uk or traditional allies area it's is that the thinking I don't know that I would say that America is further ahead on this. I, I I actually would doubt that. 
I think the complexity of their political situation and the scale of the requirement for them um, means they're probably struggling first with uh, vaccination rate as an issue. Uh, and of course, their economy isn't as familiar with the importance of uh, international travel, inbound and outbound, as perhaps uh, other countries are. Like in Canada, we know that we need inbound tourism. We know that we do a lot of trade with the rest of the world. We know that those uh, international connection points are incredibly important to the functioning of our lives and of our economy. And in America, that there isn't as much political energy around that idea. There's more of a sense that the economy and the political system can function as an island unto itself. I don't think that's that's an accurate view, but I think that is a that is a trait almost of how America kind of works. So I'd be surprised if they're ahead of us uh, in this. I kind of feel like our systems are built more to solve for these problems because we're aware of them and we and we're not dealing with. Um, 350, 60 million people, we're dealing with something smaller and maybe a little bit more manageable from that standpoint, too. All right. We're going to move on. There's an interesting development on the political front this week, and uh, you're going to try and get a sense from you as to what it has all meant. We'll do that right after this. Mansbridge back with Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth. I'm in Toronto. Bruce Anderson's in Ottawa today. Okay, the the main topic number two uh, is about Catherine McKenna. Now, that is a name that uh, Canadians who follow politics at all in this country will be aware of because for the last um, six years, she's been in the uh, Justin Trudeau cabinet. She's probably best known for her time well, for two things. For her time in the environment portfolio, uh, where she championed the cause of uh, climate change and all things green, uh, and uh, still uh, does today after she left that portfolio. And many people think if she's going to step out of politics, which she's announced this week she's doing, um, that uh, she will be heading in some manner into the environment field on the um, on private sector side, but we'll see. We we don't know what what's going to happen there. Uh, the second thing she's been best known for is kind of a sad and cruel part of our um, society today, in the sense that she is being trolled mercilessly on uh, the internet and in social media, um, basically for being a woman in politics, and it's been you know, really vicious. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think I need to say anything more than that about that. But her departure um, has led to a lot of discussion about the state of uh, uh, various things on the political uh, arena in Canada right now and the impact it could have on the election if, in fact, that election is called in in August uh, for sometime in September. Uh, and I want to get your uh, your take on the uh, on the McKenna decision because it has been one that has prompted a lot of discussion and a lot of possibilities in the last few days. Yeah, let me start with um, I didn't know Catherine McKenna until um, 
just a little while before she decided to run in uh, 2015. And, and I got to know her in part because we lived near each other and I guess we knew people in common. And she wanted to uh, ask me a question about whether or not um, if she decided to run, did I think based on my understanding of the riding and political dynamics, would she have a chance of, of winning? And that's a normal conversation that a lot of people have as they're thinking about running for office because it's a big it's a big step to take. It's a, uh, you put a lot on the line. And so I, I started a conversation with her then and, and uh, kind of looked at the results in the riding and kind of basically said to her, as I remember, um, it, you know, this is not an unwinnable riding for you. You would probably need two things in order to succeed. One is you need to work incredibly hard. And second is you need to experience a bit of a wave of support for your party. And um, she decided to get in and uh, she did get both a wave of support for Justin Trudeau in that 2015 election. And she worked incredibly hard. And I think incredibly hard for me is the jumping off point uh, to describe her work ethic in politics. And I just want to make it clear that I think her leaving politics is a rational decision for somebody who um, has three school-aged children, has experienced both uh, a, a lot of success in getting the things that she wanted done, but also some frustration with uh, the impact on her life and a desire to do other things with her life that that are consistent with her values as well. So, um, uh, you know, I do think that against um, not all odds, I wouldn't say that. This is somebody who's very smart, who's incredibly hardworking, and who is persevering and energetic to a level that that most of us can only look on in, in awe of. Uh, and you need that in politics because she was trying to roll that carbon price rock up a hill. And I don't know if you remember that picture called the resistance that McLean's ran of all these conservative premiers and the federal conservative leader. And, and in that run up to the 2019 election, they were all saying, we're going to take this policy down. We're going to crush this carbon price. And this is and Andrew Shear ran on the basis of um, bill number one when I'm prime minister is to repeal the carbon tax. And you know, you and I are old enough to remember you bring in a new tax, even if it's a good policy, the GST being a good example, a lot of people get upset. A lot of people find reasons to take issue with it. If you're a, a member of a government led by somebody called Trudeau and you're trying to introduce a tax on fossil fuels and you've got conservative premiers in Alberta and Saskatchewan and a conservative leader from Saskatchewan or not really from Saskatchewan, but you know what I mean, uh, <laughs> you're going to get a lot of ferocity coming back at you. So it took an incredible amount of energy. And I, and when I unpack the, um, and she got it done and in the election in 2019, the majority of Canadians voted for a party that supported a carbon price and the liberals won despite that. And the conservatives are not running this election against a carbon price while they're running for a different kind of carbon price. But that debate, she helped resolve in the direction of the kind of climate change policy that she felt was right for the country and which I happen to agree with. And I think you do as well. So uh, I think it's a, um, you know, I think she's had a track record of success. Uh, and I do think that um, the point that you make about the sad realization of what um, social media sometimes shows us 
about who we are as a society or what is there in society in addition to all the goodwill and the good faith that there is out there. Um, that's something that maybe we wouldn't have seen as sharply or as in stark contrast if we didn't have someone like her with her energy on the issues that she was pushing because uh, she definitely got more of that pushback and vitriol, hatred, misogyny uh, than anybody else in Canadian politics has. Is the writing, would you still describe the writing the same way you did to her in 2015 in terms of its kind of position on the scale of winnability or uh, whether it favors one particular party well, over the other going in? I think when she asked the question, she was asking it from the standpoint of, can a liberal take this riding away from a new Democrat because Ed Broadbent had that riding and Paul Dewar had that riding and both of those people were very popular in Ottawa and um, and they were, you know, or they were people who could rally progressive voters. Um, but before the uh, broadband doer years, um, it had been a liberal writing. Um, and John, John and so right. I was looking at it from the standpoint of could a liberal take it back from a new Democrat and giving her my thoughts based on what I saw about the evolution of the numbers over time. Now, I would say uh, it will take a very strong new Democratic candidate uh, to beat whoever the liberals put up. Uh, as a candidate, um, you know, it took Ed Broadbent to beat Richard Mahoney, somebody that we both know is a very qualified individual who ran uh, for the Liberals in that riding before. So I, I think this riding in this current context leans liberal. Um, but uh, there's a lot of progressive voters in that riding. It's a hard riding for the Conservatives, and it won't be made easier by the fact that. Um, you know, some of the decisions that the Conservatives have made recently on this uh, B Bill C-6 about conversion therapy, that sort of thing, it's not, um, those aren't the signals that a riding like Ottawa Centre is looking for to think about uh, voting Conservative again. When you talk about the history, I mean, they're, they're, it's, it's modern day history, as you say, as a Liberal uh, riding John Turner. Was that not John Turner's riding originally when when he, no, no, no. Uh, John Turner was further south in the city. I think this it was actually called Ottawa South. I think that's David McGinty's writing. Ah, right. Um, okay, okay. Well, I was, you know, trying to remember, but there was a long you were time close. Ago. You were within uh, like a couple <laughs> yeah, of kilometers. Blocks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He had a number of writings because, of course, he, he also Vancouver. When he yeah. came back. He was in Vancouver. Um, okay, so that I mean that's. That's There's a, a fair bit of, of speculation about is. whether Mark Carney is exactly. going to run somewhere this election, um, and uh, I don't think that speculation is is resolved. I suspect that given the pace of the um, the apparent run up to the election, that the decision's got to be made um, by him sometime soon. Uh, I think that her decision not to run puts a question on the table for him, um, and. You know, I, I, I tend to think if he was considering running for any party, I'd like to see him run. I think he's a qualified individual. I think he's got interesting things to say. We've talked about him before and some of the themes in his book uh, about markets and people and, and how we need to think about that. So um, 
you know, if the liberals are his party, I hope he runs uh, for the liberals um, and, uh, you know, tests his ideas out and, and his approach out with with voters. The, uh, the, certainly the Ottawa Centre would be an appealing riding, I would think, if you were him. The, the thing about Mark Carney is uh, what he has to decide is what does he want to be, right? I mean, it's always being assumed that what he really wants to be is prime minister. And... You know what is the proper or the appropriate or the, uh, the the right strategy for a pathway to that position? Is it running, you know, as a as a basically as an ordinary MP who would almost certainly go into a cabinet in some position? Uh, if in fact the Liberals won the election, if the Liberals won a majority government in an election, that makes his. <laughs> <laughs> thinking about the prime minister's office that much further down the road, one assumes. Uh, minority government, that's a whole different question. But, uh, you know, what What does he want to be? And where would he? could he see himself after an election if he won in his riding? And if it was the McKenna riding or some other riding in Ottawa, uh, where would he want to end up? That seems to me to be the bigger question for him as opposed to which riding he's going to run in. Maybe. I mean, I, I, look, I think politics is a little bit like that. It's a, you know, it's a crackerjack box. You open it up. You don't know what prize is going to be in it. Uh, and, and anybody that has ever tended to think, okay, there's a linear route from where I am now to what I want to be. Um, there's a lot of people who thought that and it didn't work out that way. And I don't know that I think that that's how he thinks. I, I, I haven't had that conversation with him, but I do think it's instructive that he wrote a book that was about what he wants to do or what he believes needs to be done. It wasn't really a book about who does he want to be? And I think that one of the challenges in politics has been the need to recruit more people who know what they want to do or contribute to rather than who have an idea of what they want to be in terms of a position. So good for him that he's he's written in, in a lot of detail about the kinds of ideas that he'd like to put in place. And I happen to believe that somebody with his stature um, could make a useful contribution Um without needing to be prime minister. And so, um, you know, I'd rather hope that he doesn't make the calculation based on that. And, I, you know, it, my sense is that... Um, you're skating. That he's approaching it the right way. You're, you're starting to skate now. You're, ah, like, you're you know, doing I, a few <laughs> laps around the rink when you know that the best way to achieve the goals you want to achieve on the big scale, whether it's, you know. Are you saying I'm blowing smoke? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> you're doing a little smoke I'm giving you the truth here. The, tr well, look, I, I, the truth is, obviously, if you want to achieve these big goals, and that's what his book is full of, big goals and big ideas, you got to be in the big job. Or you got to have unbelievable influence on whoever is in the big job. Yeah, you know, you and I, uh, or you anyway, you've been around long enough to, to go back to uh, a time when there were senior ministers in a government that yes. accomplished a lot and That's were true. known for accomplishing a lot. And uh, I kind of feel like that's a better model than the idea that only one person gets to decide everything. And, and I'm not saying that's exactly the way that it is, but I think um, I kind of liked in the Brian Mulrooney uh, um, 
government that I could identify people like Michael Wilson and Lowell Murray and others who carried big files, who had a lot of heft uh, in any conversation on any subject at the cabinet table. And I think that's been true with other ministers since then. But um, I guess because you and I have been around for a while, we're kind of more familiar with a time when that was more the norm. So uh, I don't know. I'd challenge that a little bit. Um, and uh, and I'm not just challenging it because I'd like to see him get in without it being conditional on his belief that he could get to uh, uh, to that uh, uh, to the prime minister's office uh, before before too much time passed. Yeah, I, I would I would agree with those points. And there's certainly whether it was the the Mulroney years or the um, you know the Pierre Trudeau years, most Canadians could rattle off the names of you know four or five cabinet ministers without any trouble because they were dominant in the news they were dominant in the discussion of big issues uh, and they had their impact you know you mentioned the Mulroney you know Mazankowski he was huge in terms of uh, you know uh, influence over uh, events and issues that uh, that occurred but uh, anyway um, that that just doesn't feel that way these days didn't feel that way during the Harper years um, and even to the Kraychan years, really, it was all very much sort of the sense that there was kind of one person who was making all the uh, making all the calls. But I'm not going to go up against you on a uh, on another thing in this broadcast after being hammered down on on OG <laughs> and hammered down on on Turner's riding in Ottawa. In it was 1960s. gentle. Come on, it was gentle. Yeah, I don't want to run the risk of going zero for three. That would be bad. Um, we'll get a lot of bad letters then. I'll get bad letters. Yeah. <laughs> you never get bad letters. The little letters that come in about you. Oh, he's so adorable in his little radish farm. <laughs> oh, boy. All right. Uh, we're going to wrap it up uh, for today. Unless you've got a, an election date you can give us now and uh, not waver on it. Well, you know, when you added the not waiver on it, <laughs> wavering is an essential part of the prognostication <laughs> business in politics. That's true. No, I think it's going to be in September. I still think it's going to be in September. And I think a lot of people will, you know, may say right now that they don't want an election. But I think that, um, you know, typically, I, I, you know, I do think after something like what the country will have been through that people might just decide, okay, let's. Let's go to the polls and um, and send a signal about what kind of government we want for the next uh, few years. You know that the uh, if in fact the election is called in you know somewhere in mid to late August for end of September, the first day or two or maybe even three is going to be dominated by why did we need an election? Why did you call an election? You didn't need to call an election. <laughs> it, it's so predictable, right? It kind of happens every time, especially coming out of a minority government. Fixed date elections. You know, technically, a fixed date election is a fixed date election. That shouldn't be one until twenty twenty one, or sorry, twenty uh, twenty three. Yeah. Um. And you know, I guess there'll be, you know, a little bit of that argument as well. Mm. Um. But but when it, it you know nobody's going to vote at the end of the day. At least I don't think at the end of the day on whether or not it should have been this year. I don't think so either. I, I'm with you on that, and I'm very with. you know aware of the. Uh, David Peterson example that people use to say, well, he got really hammered uh, and Bob Ray won that election because people thought Peterson precipitated an election that wasn't necessary. And and I think that that analysis is true about that 
particular situation. However, I think that this last couple of years has felt like seven years or 10 years or something really long. And I think that you've got a government that has spent 300 plus billion dollars doing things that um, had not been planned. And so we've got a road ahead that requires some policy choices. Uh, that's just just related to the economy and the fiscal situation. And there are lots of other things, too. So I'd be really surprised if a lot of people approach the election, if it happens, as we're talking about now in September, with a view to there's nothing to resolve here. There's no agenda to set. Uh, this is a waste of time and money. I, I think instead I'm with you that people are going to go. Yeah, OK, let's make a choice. All right. That's going to wrap it up. Uh, for this Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth, for this day, tomorrow is Canada Day. And uh, we encourage you to think through the country in terms of that day tomorrow. It is uh, different, and we all know why, than it has been in the past. Um, so you, you choose your path uh, for how you want to deal with Canada Day tomorrow. Uh, part of it, uh, certainly in my case, I think in Bruce's, uh, will be to acknowledge some of the things about our past that we're not particularly proud of um, and what we're going to do about trying to make amends for that. All right. Um, as I said, that's it for this day. This has been Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth. The Radish Farmers in Ottawa. I'm here in Toronto today, and we will be back in seven days.